Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Ephesians, but what we find, first of all, basic principles. All of us are gifted for service. They're called charismata. They're grace manifestations has nothing to do about spirituality has everything to do with God's grace so all of us all of us to each one is given to everyone is given keep running into people who say well I'm just not gifted I'll just sit here and pray and watch but I'm not gifted then I say well God's a liar because that's what he says about you in the text he says to each one to everyone if the Holy Spirit inspired the words the Holy Spirit's God so God is telling us that that's how he designed us. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, he placed us in the body as he chose. Now, most of you think, well, you know, I chose to be a member of this church. Mm, I hate to tell you, there's a mystery behind your choosing. And that is that God chose you for it. He placed you in the body as he chose. He designed the church. That's great news. We're not useless. You have purpose. You have meaning. Your life is essential to God's plan for His kingdom through Seneca Baptist Church. That, that's how important you are to this task. Each one of us are gifted. There's unity and diversity. So, well, I, I can't teach or I can't sing. Guess what? I can't sing. Now, I might can teach a little, but there are other things you can do. You can, there are service gifts. There are ministry gifts. All of us have different gifts, and guess what? It takes the diversity to even create the unity. And so Paul illustrates spiritual gifts with the human body. So one part of the body can't say, well, I don't need you because you're not like me. Or one can't say, you know, you're not a foot, so you're not important to the task. So he illustrates all this. And by the way, gifts make us interdependent. You can't say, well, I don't need you because the truth is we all need each other. So if you've always thought, well, I can just sit, you know, and just kind of listen, but I'm not involved or engaged, the Spirit of God says you are. Now, last Sunday I began the message with an illustration from my football past, and so my young uh, group of theologians up front asked me if I had a North, another story for today, and the fact is I do. When I got to Cambridge, I... Uh, a number of my friends there in graduate school wanted me to go for rugby. Have any of you ever watched rugby? That's nuts. I mean, they're playing football with no pads on. I did that when I was a kid, and I still have some of the scars from that. You don't play a contact sport with no pads on. I said, no, thank you. So I'm kind of wandering around the some of the parks in, in Cambridge, and there's a beautiful river that flows through it, the Cam River, from which Cambridge is named. And I noticed these uh, eights rowing up and down the river, and there's swans on the river. There's girls walking beside the river, and I'm thinking, that would be a good sport. Now, let me explain this to you, but I'm going to show you a little video in case you think, what is an eight? 
and you've got six boats competing at, at a, a super high speed, then it doesn't take much to unsettle that. And it's all about teamwork. It's the ultimate team sport in my eyes because all nine of us have to be perfectly in sync and on the same wavelength mentally to produce a result. So my role is to get the most out of the crew. That can be technically, that can be physically, or sometimes emotionally. I've just got to read my guys and, and know when to make the right call at the right time. What we rely on is rowing together really, really well and, and being on the same page so that when the time comes, there's no hesitation, there's no thought, it just, it just happens. It's really awesome to, to wear the silver fern and be part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's, that's what it's all about, fighting for your country and helping the rowers to, to get the most out of themselves. We are one of the youngest crews in the world in the men's act field, so we just have to use that to our advantage and really attack it. Okay, now it looks simple, doesn't it? Not actually. Uh, I'd never rowed before, and so there is a, a little issue called catching a crab. Now, you don't know what that is, but when, when you're rowing, obviously you're sitting backwards. I don't know if you happen to notice that or not. There's only one person that can see the front, and that's the cox. And I always thought I'd like to be the cox because all he does sits in the boat and calls out orders. Now, unfortunately, if the cox is not doing it well, you're in serious trouble. So the boat as you're moving, you, you pull the blade all the way back, and then you put the blade in as square as you can. You begin the process of the stroke. Now, the issue is that everybody in the boat needs to take the same stroke at the same moment. So if you watch that, every oar, in, that's an Olympic-sized boat, so we're in good shape here. Mine was not. So every oar has to enter the water at the same moment, take the same length stroke, and then you do what's called feathering the blade. You pull the blade out at an angle so that it doesn't get stuck because if it gets stuck and the boat is still moving, the end of your handle that you're holding in the boat is going to hit you under the chin. And you're going to be in the water very quickly and you say how do you know that <laughs> experience is a wonderful teacher now the amazing thing is those of you who enjoy skiing and you know about a boat getting up on step or getting up on plane that boat will plane out that boat with an olympic rowing team will actually do 18 miles an hour so when we began rowing, obviously we were not Olympic quality. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. It was like doing sit-ups and running a marathon at the same moment. And it was like, I will never do this. Now when the team gets it together and every blade hits the water at the same time and you begin to feel this momentum, the boat literally rises, it gets on step, and it's simple. It's an easy task, and that's the church. You see, if we'd all get our oars in the water at the same time, and we all take the same stroke, whatever our gift, whatever our task, and we move that through, feather the blade, get it out, listen to the cocks, because he's got the vision for where God is sending us. That's what God wants his church to function like, and he's going to describe it over in the book of Ephesians. Now, before we can get to Ephesians, we've got to start in Colossians for just one moment, because if you don't know, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon are all prison epistles, probably written at the same time. Epaphras, who was a pastor at Colossae, had visited Paul in prison. He said, we got an issue. The issue in proconsular Asia was heresy. 
And so he comes to Paul. Paul's in prison. Uh, by the way, Paul's got a friend there, Onesimus. Remember Onesimus? He's a slave who was either a Christian, made his way there, or was converted by Paul when he found him in prison. So Paul's got to send Onesimus back home, and his owner lives in Colossae. So he's Philemon. There's your Philemon letter. And so he's writing a letter to Colossae, but Paul's never been to Colossae. It's apparent that he probably led the pastor of Colossae to Christ, and that was why he had that. It was a church plant probably out of Ephesus. So Paul writes three letters at the same time, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. All of them are born by a man named Tychicus. If you're looking for a name for your son, there you go. It's a good one. I never heard anybody called Tychicus, but he's in the end of these letters. So he brings the letters there leaves the Ephesian letter at Ephesus to be distributed, I think probably to all seven churches in the book of Revelation that, that we've been hearing about on Wednesday night. It was kind of an association of churches. So the Ephesian letter and the Colossian letter pretty much describe each other. If you've ever studied those two letters, you'll find that they cross-reference all the time. Now, the heresy later in the first, second centuries was named Gnosticism. Not important that you know it. If you watch Oprah Winfrey, you've heard it because it's all New Age thinking and there's nothing new about New Age. You see, Satan's a liar, not a creator. So same old stuff, every generation relabel. Now there's an interesting word in Gnosticism and it's a Greek word, pleroma. It's translated fullness. Only occurs in these two letters in the prison epistles. And Paul uses it several times because the pleroma for them was this kind of nebulous, almost like the force in Star Wars, that somewhere at some point exploded, and all of us have this divine spark of pleroma, fullness. Ever hear of divine spark, and all of us have this little divinity within us? Well, it isn't true. All of us are in the image of God, fallen creatures into sin, so we don't need to be enlightened, we need to be redeemed. So Paul is going to take over this word and fill it with absolutely new meaning. So start in Colossians, because I've got to get you over to our text. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this description of Jesus. I just love it. I'm going to read more than I have to, but it's so good. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him everything was created in the heavens and on the earth, the visible, the invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Everything has been created through him and by him. Those are, those are words that were current in kind of Gnostic philosophy. And Paul just kind of throws them out and said, I don't care what you call them and where they were and how many of them there are. Guess what? Anything that exists was created by him and serves him. Now he goes on to say, uh, he is before all things. In him everything holds together. Now that's such an incredible creation. Uh, just a, 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 an image of the creator God that is so powerful in Christ Jesus. Look at this. He is the head of the body, the church. In other words, he goes through all the panoply of glory. I remember Paula and I were flying into Alaska some years ago to do a convention there, and she was on the window side. And as we're setting down, the sun is setting over there, and it's just so spectacular over those mountain ranges. She looks at me and she says, how can anybody see this created order and not believe in God? And I said to her, you know, the church has even greater glory than all the created order. 
Only the church is called his bride, his field, his building. Only the church was he sent to establish. Only the church did he send his Holy Spirit to infill. Only the church will he return to redeem. It's the church. So Paul ends up by saying, and beyond that, it's this church. He's the head of it. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he himself, underlying this, will come to have first place in everything. So why did God come to establish the church through Jesus' his son? It's so that one day he will sum up everything in the heavens and on the earth through the church. The role that we have is cosmic. It's incredible. It's not just for a moment or a time, but it's for eternity. He said he's going to sum up everything through him in the church for it was the father's good pleasure for all of the what's the word fullness pleroma to dwell in christ so paul takes this word and says listen if you have any interest in knowing anything about the pleroma the only way you can is look to jesus jesus is the fullness of god jesus would say listen if you've seen me you've seen who yeah the father the father and i are a one. So Jesus in his incarnation was the full expression of God. Do you agree? All right, let's start in Ephesians 1 now. Now, I know we're getting to Ephesians 4, but you got to get there. Paul's going to pray for the church. Here's his prayer for the church. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So he picks up the language, enlightenment. But he says, I want to go beyond your head because head knowledge informs, heart knowledge transforms. See, a lot of people have head knowledge. They, they come to church and they got Bible verses memorized, you ought to. But the question is, does the word transform you? So he said, head knowledge enlightens, but I want heart knowledge to transform. So I pray that you will know what is the hope of his calling. It's a term from Israel's past. We are God's called out people. So he's not just talking about our calling to salvation or a calling to specific ministry. He's saying, I want you to know that you are what God is doing. He's working through a new Israel, the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to understand this. I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, did you know that you're God's heritage? We are God's heritage. He's not talking about what we're going to inherit in God. He's talking about what he inherits in us. We are his heritage. He said, I want you to understand that, that you're that critical to what God is doing on planet Earth. I want you to know the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, hang on. This one's going to take about five verses. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So we look back on, on the past. What did Jesus do at the cross? We, we just kind of started with Easter this morning because Easter is every day. God raised him from the dead. And not only was he raised from the dead, he is now seated on the right hand of the Father. Now, most of us would say making intercession for the saints, but there's more to his work there, and we're going to see it in this passage in just a moment. So he said, I want you to understand that the power available to you in the church is the same power that God used raising Jesus from the dead. Just stop a minute. Don't say, I wonder what he's going to talk about next, because that's enough. 
We cannot make excuses for why we cannot accomplish his mission when we understand that the power that works through us in the church is the same power that raised Jesus physically from the dead. That's, that's the power he's talking about. He's going to describe it even more. He said, far above, he placed him in the heavenly places above all, here's some of those words of Gnosticism again, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, even in this age. So we look at some of these dictators and we can name the names and say, boy, they're upsetting the balance of power. No, they're not. God is still in control. He is still sovereign on his throne and nothing is surprising him. And as the pastor prayed, he can work in everything for good to those who love him. And he is somehow through this chaos advancing his kingdom. That is amazing to me. Just stunning. Boy, it changes the way you watch the news. That we begin to look at it and say, okay, Lord, what is it you're accomplishing through this that we don't understand and our politicians can't understand, but you are still doing something bigger than we can imagine, and the mystery is he wants to do it through us. So he put everything in subjection under his feet. He gave him his head over everything to the what? Are you with me in the text? To the church. So why did he raise Jesus from the dead? Why did he seat him on the right hand? Why did he place every authority and power under his feet? For us. For the church. Why? Because it is his body. All right, are you reading? The what? Fullness. Play Roman. Did you know? Listen. Hear me. The church. Uh, yeah, Seneca Baptist Church was created by God to express His fullness as if Christ were present in flesh here in Seneca. Because He is. Remember Acts 1.1, this is what Jesus, what? Began to do and teach in Luke. Now what is He doing in Seneca? He is still at work because His church is His Playrama and Jesus is the playrama of God. If if you hadn't just read those two texts together, you might have thought, well, gosh, that, that seems like pastors overstating it. No, Paul's not overstating it. He said the church is designed and empowered to be his playrama, his fullness. He's going to pray this prayer again over in chapter three. I can't read all of it because I got to get to the sermon. Look at verse 19. He prays what? That we would know the love of Christ which surpasses our knowledge so that you may be filled up to the what? The fullness, to the play Ramon. So he says, I'm praying that you will know this love of Christ. You can be filled up to the fullness. Look at the benediction. Now to him who is able to do what? I love this verse. Far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think by the power that's in work. What is your greatest dream, Seneca Baptist? It's not big enough. Based on Scripture, he said, I can do far more exceedingly abundantly. If you know Greek and pastor will tell you this one, you don't want to outline this sentence. It just kind of, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Paul heaps every word he can think about. Above, beyond, exceedingly beyond everything you ask or drink, God, or think God is already at work with us. So why? 
to honor the pastor to honor Seneca Baptist? No, to him be the glory in the church. See, it's not about us. It's about his glory. It's his glory in the church. So now we get to the passage, chapter 4. I love this one. Therefore, since, that, since I just told you all of that, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. So here's point number one. Unity is the foundation for all kingdom activity through the church. So Paul begins with this call to unity. So the first part of it is this. Live a life worthy of the calling you receive. When I was in high school, I played for the Thomasville Bulldogs. We had a football coach that was a kind of a, a clone of Bear Bryant. If some of you remember the days that, that Bear, Bear Bryant kind of ruled at Alabama. And he was one of those no-nonsense guys. And we won state championship my junior year. And so he brought us out to the practice field. He had some blazers or some windbreakers actually that had state championship on them thomasville bulldogs and the logo and all that i mean everybody just pumped i mean it wasn't quite like the rings they wear for the super bowl but it was pretty impressive if you're 11th grader and we got them out and everybody putting them on strutting you know he said listen guys he said don't you even wear this in public if you can't walk the walk he said that bulldog emblem means something to me he said, stands for something. And your state championship has meaning unless you defile it by the way you behave with this jacket on. He said, just take it off. Are we walking worthy of his calling? You see, the calling cost the Son of God, his only, the Father, the only begotten Son, and the Son, his earthly life. He died on the cross to redeem us, place us in his community, and gift us for service. Are you walking worthy? So Paul begins to say, listen, you know the cost, so are you worthy of this? Are you living worthy? Secondly, he says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We talked about this last week in First Thessalonians. Living in families hard. You know, our kids are grown and gone. We got grandkids, but there's just two of us, and it's hard to be in harmony sometimes with just your spouse isn't it so now we kind of multiply that by the life of this church and you have differences of opinion different likes and desires and, and paul said we've got to live in harmony that we got to be patient bear with one another in love thirdly he says keep the unity of the spirit now proverbs tells us that a cord of three is pretty daggum strong he's going to give you a cord of seven Two threes plus one. Seven being the number of perfection. So here they are. Just listen to them or list them if you like. One body. He's talking about the church. He said there's one church, the church universal. All of those churches coming together throughout the world that declare the name of Christ, who have the gospel priority, there is one body. Now, pastor prayed for some of the evangelicals in the Ukraine. There are evangelicals in Russia. Did you know they're, we're part of that community? That's why we pray for them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, 
we've been seeing through these Ukrainian guys that have moved here. Just an amazing movement of God that, that we didn't even know about. Links that we've had in our past and their past that God is putting together in a blend that we just go, man, he's big. He is a big God. However big you think the crisis we're dealing with, we've got a much bigger God. He said, we have one body, one spirit. He's talking about the same Holy Spirit and dwells all of us. So we have one spirit that produces the same fruit and produces the gifts within us. We have one calling. You go back to remember, I told you in First Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that what? We would be know the hope of his calling. We're, we're his people. We're called together on mission. We have one Lord. Christ himself is Lord. So we don't have the opportunity to use the phrase, no Lord. I've always thought that was amazing. People say, well, no Lord, I, I, I'm not that good. You don't use the word Lord and no in the same sentence. We have one Lord. There's only one that commands his church. We have one faith. It's probably talking about a body of doctrine here. That, that's one of the reasons we were appreciative of the fact that the pastor, before we began, did an interview with us. I've been seminary president. He said, okay, listen, our church subscribes to Baptist faith and message. Do you agree? You say, why is it important that we agree on doctrine? Because doctrine is that which holds us together. The, the fundamentals of the faith, that we agree on the Word of God. We agree in its inerrancy, its power, its authority. We agree that Christ alone is sufficient for redemption because we don't agree on that. We're not a mission together. You see, we have one faith, one baptism reminding us that moment that we entered in relationship with Christ Jesus and He immersed us, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, into His body. You see, we may differ on nuances. I, I can assure you that people with different interest and styles of worship etc but there is more that binds us to each other and to christ than would ever divide us so those secondary issues we got to put around for the mission of the church now secondly you're going to notice that he says the exalted king gifts his bride look at this now to each one of us grace that's the word chorus that in it used in a different way in 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts, not just grace for salvation, but grace for service. So each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression that he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended to the lower part of the earth? He who descended himself is also the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might do, fill all things. Now, a lot of technical issues that we could get into on a Wednesday night. We don't need to. And, and so the question is, did he ascend to the earth, i.e. lower part, the incarnation, or that descent into hell that we know about? answer is, I don't know. And it's not important to this passage. It could be either, and scholars differ on that. What this is interesting is that it says that when Christ was ascended to heaven, same one who occurred. So there's no difference here. The Jesus who we know in the incarnation is now sitting on the right hand of God. You got it? That's what he wants you to understand. That he, he is no longer in that tomb. He is raised. He is reigning from on high right now, even in the chaos of our world. And a part of his reign, I told you, some of you are going to quote, you know, that he always making intercession for the saints, and he is. 
You know what else he's doing? He's pouring out gifts on his church so that his church might be the tool that he would use to summarize everything in himself. You know what the gifts are? You, me. He gifts us and then gifts us to his church. It's like we're his bridal gift. Is that an amazing thing? He looks at the church as his bride. Do you know how much you love your bride and how important she is to you? Well, the, the fact is, when people say, well, I love Christ, but I just, don't, I just don't have room for the church. Duh. The church is his bride. It's why he came to earth. It's why he sits on the right hand of the Father now, is to pour out gifts intercede for his church pour out gifts on his church so he gives you spiritual gifts abilities and talents then he gives you to his church he said to his bride here let me let, let me give you this bridal gift so we are the gifts that god gives to his church why so that he might fill all things with himself go back to chapter 1 verse 10 uh, we can't read all of this but look at this one he made known to us, nine, the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. So God has a kind intention, which he purposed in Jesus. What is it? Verse 10, underline it in your Bible, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, that he will sum up everything in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. The world may look chaotic, but God's kingdom is not. God has an intention, a plan that he's been working before he ever started digging the foundations for the earth. And that is that not only will Jesus be the means of our redemption, but that Jesus will be the means of his cosmic redemption of everything in himself. And Jesus' means and method of doing it was to establish the church, his bride. So Paul said he's going to get the church so that he could fill all things. Third thing, he gives us an image here kind of closing the loop that gifted leaders are designed to equip gifted members. So listen, he gave some as apostles, a little different gift list than you find in 1 Corinthians, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the, look for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service. So, so what do the saints do here? They deacon. <laughs> That's the same word, diakonos. Now there are some that are deacons. We looked at that in Acts 6. But what is the role of those in leadership? Why, why did leadership have such a primary responsibility in this gift list and not in 1 Corinthians? You know why? Because they were dealing with what? Heresy. So he mentions those establishment gifts and ongoing gifts that have to do primarily with teaching and equipping where we started in 1 Thessalonians 5. So you say, who are these? The apostles probably are the apostles. The 12, the original 12, then replaced. In some cases, the word apostle is also used to, to be an emissary from a church. So the apostles, prophets. Now, there's a debate. Are these the Old Testament prophets that told us about the coming of Christ or New Testament prophets? Because of the order, apostles and prophets, they're probably New Testament prophets. He said, what are they predicting? No. Remember last week, 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, do not despise what? Prophetic utterance. 1 Corinthians, he defines that as basically what we call preaching. Taking the scripture and applying it 
to our hearts and lives. So Sunday school teachers, you have a prophetic role many times. Pastor has a prophetic role. When, when we take the Word of God and we say, here's, thus saith the Lord. We're not creating new revelation. The revelation ceased when Jesus came because God spoke His final and full word. So these are not predictive prophets. They're prophets who speak for edification, consolation. Then he mentions evangelists. Uh, likely church planters here, not so much Billy Graham, etc., although there are people who have those unusual gifts. But then he underlines pastor-teacher again, because now we've seen the church moving through its whole establishment in the book of Acts, and we're coming down to where Paul, in a few years, is going to be writing those pastorals that we're studying on Wednesday night, which you need to be in. Make your reservations for this Wednesday night. Because we're in Timothy, and we're going to take more of the understanding of how this church was designed. Those final letters that Paul writes to say, here's what is required of a pastor. Here's what's required of a deacon. Here's what's required of women who serve women in the life of the church. So uh, he begins to look at that. But the leader is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what's the results when a church kind of gets all the oars in the water at the same time? Well, let's just read it from the text. Until, verse 13, we attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature man measured by the statue which belongs to the what? Fullness. Holy smokes. We actually can become what God designed us to be. It's not as if this is just kind of out there ethereal. There's no reason that the church today cannot be as powerful and effective as the church of the first century. Nothing has changed. The Holy Spirit's the same. The mission is the same. The exalted Lord is the same. The power poured out on the church is the same. Paul wasn't writing this just for Ephesus. The Holy Spirit was writing this for Seneca. It's for the church today. So look at this. He says, first of all, that we had attained to the unity of the faith. Now, notice again the sovereign design and the necessary free will response. God designed the church to have unity, but now he says what? Attain to unity. Did you know that you can do things that would disrupt the unity of this church and it would impact the mission of this church? That's why we saw last week, esteem highly those who are over you in the Lord. Why? Because of the mission. For the mission's sake. It's about His mission. It's about His kingdom. This kingdom, this cosmic kingdom, is too big for us to ever play at church. This is what God is doing to redeem the world and summarize everything in Jesus. And you're a part of that. It's not just kind of a casual church membership. This is a covenant community in relationship with Jesus Christ to advance His kingdom until He comes. That's what the church is about. That's who we are. So he says we're going to attain the unity of the faith, mature knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you love God this morning with all your heart, your soul, and your mind? You see, there is something about going on to maturity. There are a lot of Christians who, who say, well, I, I, it, pastor talks too much theology. Dude, that's the study of God. What else are we going to talk about here? If we don't come to mature knowledge of the Son of God, He's wanting the equipping of the saints so that we are fully prepared. One of the things I love is that every time 
the Bible is open in this pulpit or on Wednesday night, I hear something new from the Lord. I don't know about you, but I've studied these passages for a long time. But the Holy Spirit always teaches me. So some of you say, well, I grew up in church. I've got a lot of it memorized. Well, has it memorized you? You see, the Word's got to take a different tack in our life in that way so that we might become the playroom of God, how God has designed us. The last one's probably doctrinal security. Now, I know I went a little long last week, so i got to get back in shape. Pastor will be up next week. Two keys to balanced growth. They're right here at the end of this passage. Verse 15, 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every aspect into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, that is Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I've spent a lot of time traveling across our denomination and speaking churches large and small. And, and I'll run into some folks, I call them the sit and soak variety. They'll say, I don't know why you guys talk so much about church growth. I just come to sit and, and, and soak in the Word of God. Only two categories, sit and soak or serve and send. You see, the Word of God is designed to transform us into the image of God so that we become the full expression of God. And so it's not about just what does this church do for me, it's the question, what does this church do for the world? How are we engaged here in Seneca and beyond? How do we serve? What can I do? Put me in the game, Pastor. Help me get my oar out of the water at the same time because if we're going to become that boat that we're not going to maybe make 18 miles an hour, but we might get 16, we've got to get all of our oars in the water at the same time. We've got to take the same stroke. We've got to follow the same direction and see what God is doing. So he begins by saying, speak the truth in love. See, there's a kindness factor if you're going to be family. There's importance to the truth, but the truth got to be in love. Then the second part of this is rather curious. It says that let each part fully function. Now, there's, there's actually a point here where some liberal scholars, and I'm not sure I ought to use the word liberal and scholar together. It, it annoys me that there are people who teach in our universities and some of our seminaries sometimes, not ours, fortunately, since the conservative surgeons who kind of don't believe the Bible. And I always thought, why would I teach it if I didn't believe it? That always amazed me. Why, why would somebody go to university and try to discourage people from believing what the book actually says? I'd find another job if that was me. But they say there's a, an error in this verse. They say, what is the error? And they say, oh, it's a biological error. Because it suggests that the joint supplies energy that which every joint or every ligament supplies now you know and i know that the joint doesn't supply the energy ah uh, it's not what it says it actually says that christ the head supplies the energy so he's going beyond the biological model to say the resurrected lord supplies the energy now remember the energy we talked about the same energy that raised jesus from the dead right same energy it says exceptionally beyond everything you ask or dream so what is the point of the joint or the ligament? Another story for my fans down here. When I was a little boy about their age, I think I was about eight at the time, my dad was Baptist preacher up in Burke County. Any of you North Carolina boys up here? And so up in Burke County, and we were starting an RA camp. Remember Royal Ambassadors? 
No, some of you don't. But at any rate, trust me, we've got a little different spin on that here in our church. Fine, there's a group for young guys. So we had a people gave us some land. We're going to build an RA camp. So if you're going to have an RA camp, the first thing you have to have is what? A pond to swim in, right? So we dug our own pond, and it has red clay around it. And so the good news, you could swim in this and dye your hair free. I mean, you know, if you just went swimming in it, you came out with red hair. You didn't need to go to the beauty parlor. It was easy. So the next thing we had to do was we had to clear off on the hill behind the pond so that we could build some small cabins because we needed to come down and spend the night. So my brother was big enough. He was older than me, and so he could come with Dad. And, of course, I wanted to go anywhere my dad went and my brother went, so they had to take me on Saturday. So the whole association came together, and people bring chainsaws and things of that nature. And it was just cool. We did, you know, it's just great. You get vein of sausage and other gourmet meal for lunch, you know, and salting. Those are nasty, aren't they? Who, whoever designed those, I don't know. They'd be good bait, but not to eat. So we go out, and, and I want a job. Now, I'm too little to have a job, but, of course, I'm begging dad. And so my dad gives me a hatchet. You know, you're thinking, what common sense pastor who's the father would give his eight-year-old son a hatchet? Well, I need to tell you that it was so dull it would not cut butter on a hot day. So he sends me up on the hill, and he says, pick out a tree, son, and cut it. Well, I've kind of got this tenacious spirit about me, and so I picked out the biggest tree on the side of the hill. I couldn't reach around. This thing was a monster tree. Every Saturday, I would go up to my same tree, and for eight hours, I would gnaw away at that thing with this dull hatchet. It looked like a, a beaver that had, had, you know, no teeth, you know, and a rotten teeth trying to gnaw this thing down. The amazing thing is, if you're tenacious enough, after a period of time, you will cut through this tree. You say, how do you know? One Saturday, before the leaves had fallen in the fall, I'm gnawing away. Up on the side of the hill, it's about lunchtime, my dad, my brother, and half the associational pastors are gathered on the riverbank or the pond down there having lunch. But I'm not because I have now hit the final blow and this tree is falling in slow motion. It's huge. The canopy is pulling this thing down. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, this thing is tall enough that it's going to actually hit the pond. And my dad, my brother, that's okay. And all the pastors in the association. I, I've just eliminated every Baptist church in this association in a minute. So this thing is now moving down, and the shadow is kind of going over the pond. And I yell out an eight-year-old voice, Timber! Everybody thinks, that is cute. Until it begins to pick up some speed on the way down. And it is funny. You can't believe Baptist preachers can move that quick. They just, shoop, like a bunch of ants. My, my tree comes across the thing they had to cut it out fix it and my dad took my hatchet away <laughs> so now I need a job again so he goes out to the truck and he picks up a little military shovel you remember those little fold-up shovels and uh, and he said son we need to get this stump out of the hole so there's a stump in the hole it's about this tall and he gives me the shovel so I start digging tenacious I told you and I have dug all the way under that stump. I've cut everything I can, and it's so big I cannot get it out of the hole. 
But by this moment, I look like a dirt dauber, if you remember what those things look like. I'm red mud, too. And my dad's getting ready to leave and realizes he's almost lost his youngest son. He comes back and said, boy, we got to go. I said, Dad, I'm not going until I get this stump out of this hole. And it's obviously too big for me. I can't move it. It's bigger than I am. So he goes out in the woods, takes a chainsaw, and he cuts a pole down, rolls another kind of stump up, and he puts the lever. You remember a lever and a fulcrum? Rolls it up, puts it under there, puts me on the end of the pole, and with my little body weight, the lever is long enough that I pull it down, stump just goes out. That's it. Did you know that you are the lever, the fulcrum, by which the Holy Spirit applies His power on planet Earth? By that which every joint supplies. See, you, you're the joint. You ever watch baseball and somebody gets a joint out? A pitcher particularly? You know, a guy throwing a 95-mile-an-hour fastball can't lob it in underhanded. The Holy Spirit relies upon us for the application of His power on planet Earth. You know, when you say, oh, I'll pray for our schools that we'll have revival. What are you going to do about it? You see, you, you're the joint. I won't pray for our nation. I'll pray for my lost friends. You see, what God wants to do is to use His body, to use every individual member so that the Holy Spirit can apply and multiply, magnify His power in Seneca and beyond to the world. This is a worrisome world we live in, but we know another kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the writer of Hebrews says, since you are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken, what must we give in service to? Would you bow with me? Father, right now we know your Holy Spirit is at work because you promised your word would never return void. You told us that the seed which you gave us, the word, is good seed. But you did warn us that the soil could reject the seed. Lord, if there's one here that's a hard heart like that soil in Scripture, can't be penetrated by your spirit and by the word, just Break it up today. If any of us have thorns and thistles, worries, concerns, issues that, that are keeping us from full-hearted service, just rip them out right now. Lord, don't let any of this seed fall by the wayside because we know that the enemy at work in this world, the adversary, Satan himself, would love to just scoop this seed away. But Lord, give us harvest that is a hundredfold May we, Lord, be the church on mission with you for the redemption of the world, the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, that you are on the right hand of the Father right now, not only interceding, but pouring out gifts upon your church through us. Lord, may we be your church. There's nothing more important than we can know in this day that we'd be the church. Lord, there's some here who need to identify with this church through membership to say i want a covenant community with these people for the advancement of the kingdom lord there's some here that need to know christ as their own savior lord we don't join a church we're born into it through our relationship with christ lord there's some of us who need to come to this altar again and say lord use me let me get my oar in the water i want to see what god can do through a people wholly committed to him 
We ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.